Chris Ballerton, who spoke some time ago about Easter, saying, you know, mums and dads hide Easter eggs for their kids, right? But they always hide the Easter eggs where they're going to find them. And he says, God's a bit like that. There really aren't any mysteries. There are no secrets. God might hide things, but he doesn't hide them in any different way. Your parent hides Easter eggs. So my, my general feeling is that Revelation isn't that difficult to understand. It's only theologians who have made it difficult to understand because they go off in their wonderful um, academic ways and write lots of papers that nobody reads. But they complicate things. And uh, we don't want things to be too complicated. So we're going to have a bash at getting all the way through uh, Revelation over the next little while. We'll probably take some breaks and some excursions along the way. And what I want to focus on today is the, um, the letters, the first two letters to the seven churches in, in Asia Minor. We're going to look at the letters to the church in Ephesus and in Smyrna. Now that map we've had up there a couple of times. This shows you where the seven churches are. Just remember also that when I was introducing Revelation, I mentioned that there are three levels of understanding the letters to the church. Uh, one level is that they were historical documents written to churches at that time. A second is messages to churches right across the board today. And the third level of understanding is for us as individuals. And so I think it's worth going through these, uh, these letters to the churches. I'm only going to do two today. And I want to talk about Israel Falau. And you'll see how that fits in to the letter to the church to uh, Smyrna. So I'm using the uh, New Living Translation um, as, as my, my source for scriptures uh, today. You might want to use another version. That, that's fine. I find the New Living Translation is a pretty accurate translation. It tries to stick fairly closely to being a word-for-word -word translation, but it uses language that's fairly easy for us to understand today. So I'm just going to read to you the first three verses from Revelation chapter 2. And this is John, who's writing to us about a vision that he had when he was in exile on the island of Patmos. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember the gold lampstands represent the church and the stars represent the angels over each of the churches. So this is what God is saying to the church in Ephesus. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now it would have been pretty tough to be in the church in Ephesus at that time. Ephesus was Asia Minor's most prominent city. It was the closest of the seven cities to Patmos where John was living. It was mostly a pagan city. There was very strong worship of Artemis in this city. Um, it was also a city which the emperor 
Domitian had named as the guardian of the imperial cult. Not too long before John wrote uh, Revelation, this new cult, a cult worshipping the emperors, became established. And Ephesus was the main city in which this cult was established. There was also a Jewish community in, uh, in the city, and they had some privileges. For example, they didn't have to worship the emperor. But <coughs> that didn't always help the Christians, as we shall see soon. Ephesus was also known as a place where magic was practiced. And it's interesting, you know, as I was reading, reading through this and looking at some of the commentaries on Ephesus, I began to think, you know what, it's not so different to the situation in which the church finds itself today. There's all kinds of magic practised out there. You can go into gift shops and, and buy fairies. People believe in all sorts of new age ideas. So it's not so different. There's different kind of worship. There is, of course, worship of power, worship of money, worship of the body. We see that in advertising, on television and on billboards and in shopping centres. We live in an age where there is a strong focus on the me. In fact, sometimes I characterise the age in which we live as the age of the deification of self, where we worship ourselves. So perhaps our own situation as church today is not so different, the only exception being that at the moment, at any rate, we're not likely to be executed for holding the beliefs that we hold. So here God is commending the church at Ephesus because it was sticking up for the truth. However, then we go on and we read, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or others as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from this place among the churches. But this is to your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now let me just break it down a little bit. The first couple of verses there record God's complaint. His complaint was that they had lost their first love. Um, some translations of the Bible refer only to love of God. Others refer to love of each other or love of others as well. The whole point about love in this context, and this is the way in which love is understood all the way through the Old Testament, it's relationship. So what's happened in this church? This church has become very good at standing up for the truth. It's become very good at discerning whether those who claim to be apostles are indeed apostles or whether they are just liars. But it has walked away from intimate relationship. And we have to ask ourselves today as a church, 
Do we get so committed and carried away with this word, the Bible, that we can sometimes neglect our relationship with God? That we can sometimes neglect our relationships even with each other? Perhaps even in the family sometimes we can become so committed to the truth that we neglect to build relationships in the home. So this is God's big complaint. You're doing all the right stuff, but your relationships are not what they were in the beginning. So he's saying, come back, come back to relationality. Come back to that love which is based on relationship. Remember way, way, way back, way back in Genesis, we're reading chapter 3, that God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and conversed with Adam and Eve. That's, what he want, that's the kind of relationship he wants. He wants simply for us to walk with him and just talk about the stuff of the day. Don't just go to God when the times are tough or when you have a big need. Go to Him constantly. You know, just tell Him. It's a beautiful day today. It's a beautiful day. It's great to be alive. You know, Aisley baked a cake last night. We had we we had Christmas in July last night with our with our family, and uh, we had a wonderful time. And Aisley baked a cake, and and Lauren made these little pavlovas. And everyone's on on special diets except me, right? Because um, <laughs> the only thing special about my diet is I eat everything, right? And um, that's special. That's pretty special. <laughs> you know, but I'm I'm just so grateful for that. And. Um, Evangeline this morning, you, you're sick and tired of me telling her the eight hour, the eight year wait and all that sort of jazz, but she's making a lot of noise, right? She's fairly quiet at the moment, but she's making, but I, I praise God for that. And by the way, you know, I don't mind if kids make, make a fair bit of racket. It's never really worried me, because I, I love kids and, and, and we're all part of, of God's family. But it's just the little stuff. That's what God wants to talk to you about. You know, I've got an itchy toe. He even cares about things like that because he wants relationship with us. So it's not about somehow striving to love more. It's about relationship with God. Interestingly, it doesn't matter about all the good stuff. God says, if you don't repent, of walking away from your first love, I will cast you out. I'm going to take your lampstand out from among the lampstands. At the very least, that implies that this church would cease to exist. But it might also have eternal consequence. Then uh, God goes on to say, but this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. I did a fair bit of reading about the Nicolaitans a little while ago, and uh, the truth is we don't know much about them. Um, some people say that they are followers of Nicholas of Antioch, 
And there's a reference in Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 5, to this Nicholas of Antioch. Some say they're followers of Balaam, and there's a reference in uh, Revelation 2, verses 14 to 15 to this. What we do know is that they, they were dualists. They had a, a theology of, of what we call dualism. They believed that there was a separation between the sacred and the secular. So in their eyes, what we're doing here now, that's sacred. But when we get out in the workplace, when I'm at my work tomorrow, when Malcolm's at his work tomorrow, uh, when Pamela's, she works at home, but when Pamela's working, that's not sacred anymore, that's, that's secular. And it, it led them to lead lives that were totally inconsistent with the Word of God outside of their church life. And in fact, they got involved in all kinds of immorality. It's a bit like I, I sing like, like crazy during the week and then I, I come to church on Sunday and get forgiven. And that, that was how they were living. God hates that. And the reason God hates it is because there is no division. Everything is sacred. Everything we do is sacred. Our work is sacred. Our sport is sacred. Our recreation is sacred. Our eating is sacred. Our worship is sacred. Everything is sacred. There is no dualism in the kingdom of God. And there unfortunately are a lot of people today who live their lives as if there was a separation. God hates that. God hates that because it leads people away from the truth. We can find God in everything. God intends us to find Him not just here in church, and I hope you do, but He intends us to find Him in our family relationships. He intends us to find Him in our work. He intends us to find Him in our recreation, in every area of our lives. So let us not ever fall into the trap of the Nicolaitans. Typically, at the end of each letter, there's a statement such as this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the Jewish Christians in particular reading that would have understood the reference to uh, the tree of life. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, of course. Paradise often is, uh, uh, represents the Garden of Eden. So this is a, a promise about something eternal. To everyone who is victorious, to everyone who maintains victory over sin, there will be a reward in eternity. Let me turn to the church in Smyrna. It's interesting that there are two churches. Smyrna is one of them in which there is no condemnation. It's only commendation. And so the Spirit 
says to John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and last, who is dead but is now alive, obviously a reference to Jesus. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. A Smyrna and another city, Pergamon, were constantly competing with Ephesus for preeminence. Smyrna was the second city in Asia Minor to establish an imperial cult. So again, the forces that oppose Christianity are at large in the city of Smyrna. In verse 8, the, the reference to being dead, then alive, reminds us of Jesus who died and rose again from the dead on the third day. Interestingly, this was the experience of the, the city Smyrna itself. It was, as it were, a resurrected city centuries prior to John's writing. There's reference here to the synagogue belonging to Satan. As I mentioned earlier, Jews were exempt from emperor worship, but they wanted to remain on good terms with their city. Apparently they were very wary of association with any kind of messianic movement and of course the followers of Jesus represented a messianic movement. If uh, followers of Jesus became unwelcome in the synagogues, they became vulnerable to accusations of disloyalty towards Rome. And the normal test was to worship, to bow down, and to worship a symbol of the emperor. And Christians wouldn't do that, so they were thrown in jail. A reference to ten days probably is a reference to the fact that they were executed quickly. Um, often you could languish in jail for a long time under the Roman system. You were in jail until your, your trial came. If you were found to be innocent, you were set free. There was no compensation paid, of course, but you were set free. If you were found guilty, then punishment was meted pretty well on the spot. The expectation here, though, for the Christians was that they'd only be in jail for a short time because they'd be put to death very quickly. The crown here, the crown of life, it has connotations of victory. It's interesting, isn't it, that on the one hand, they're being told you're going to be persecuted, you're going to go to jail, you're going to be executed, but you're going to get the crown, the crown of victory. The imagery comes from athletics, but also this verse might be a subtle dig at the city's claim to power. Remember, Smyrna was a city that was vying with Ephesus to become the preeminent city in Asia Minor. And this reference to the crown was a subtle dig at the powers that be in, in the city. And the letter concludes with this statement, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. 
most likely that reference to the second death is to the lake of fire that involves eternal torment. And of course, we know that that's where Satan and where all the uh, demons end up for eternity. And sadly, although not by God's desire, those who have not become followers of Jesus Christ join them. And we'll see that when we get to Revelation 20. Whoever is victorious, the victorious ones are those who become followers of Jesus Christ and live in the victory that he won for them. So the church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. And I want to point out to you that in Australia today, Christians are being persecuted. They're being persecuted in many other countries as well. In fact, I was reading only last week that Christianity is the most persecuted faith on earth today. And sure, people in Australia are not going to jail for 10 days and being executed, right? Because they're sticking up for Jesus. But Martin Isles, who, who heads up the Australian Christian Lobby, says that there are around 60 Christians in Australia today who have lost their right to education, uh, training, or to a job because of the Christian stance that they've taken. <coughs> There's a photo there with Israel Folau, and uh, the guy beside him is a guy by the name of Peter Kentley. He, ru he runs a ministry out of Melbourne. He's a friend of mine. A very fine Christian is Peter Kentley. He's a retired airline pilot. He used to fly 737s for um, ANSET. Some of you might even remember ANSET Airlines before they went broke, right? He um, used to fly aircraft. He's got an amazing testament to tell, actually, about how God showed him a problem with the early 737s that occasionally caused them to crash on takeoff. And um, he was able to write it up and it became incorporated into the manuals for flying those aircraft. It's an amazing testimony of how the Holy Spirit gave him wisdom in a critical situation, which obviously has saved many lives since then. But um, I got an email from Peter a couple of weeks ago, and um, he was making some comments on the Israel Folau case. And I'm, I'm guessing everybody's heard about it, how he was sacked, as uh, he's one of Australia's most prominent sports people, one of our best um, sports persons as well, uh, very, very talented and also hardworking, but he happens to be a Christian. So we can ask three questions here. Did Israel speak the truth? Should people hear the truth? And does he have a right to speak? I've read a lot of legal comment on one side and the other in relation to the Israel Falauka. I would have to say that a lot of the lawyers don't actually know what they're talking about because they haven't bothered to refer to the fact of the case. Mm -hmm. It's um, pretty interesting what, what I'm reading. And it just goes to show how biased people are. They make up their minds before they open their mouths or put pen to paper. Um, I just want to go on to the next slide because this is what he actually tweeted. That's, that's the original tweet. And um, warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you. And then on the other side, he's written 
I don't even think I can read it. I haven't got my glasses. But those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. And then there's a Bible passage. And I'm just going to go to the next slide. This is the Bible passage. He quoted from the King James Version. I'm using the, uh, the New Living Translation here. But he quoted from Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and this is what it says. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. <coughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, it seems to me that he was speaking the truth because he simply quoted from the Bible. And anybody can go and have a look at it and see what it was he quoted. Not many have. Should people hear the truth? Well, let me read this to you from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. So yes, people should hear the truth because it is the truth that sets them free. We are only free because we have the privilege of having access to the truth. It is the truth that sets us free. Did Israel have a right to speak? Well, there is a right to religious freedom enshrined in the Constitution. <coughs> we pride ourselves as a country in which there is free speech. What happened was that a particular person took umbrage at one word in the tweet. That word, if I go back to it, homosexuals. And it wasn't Alan Joyce, by the way. A lot of people think it was. Uh, the CEO of Qantas, who's been a fairly outspoken uh, supporter of the LGBTI, etc. Um, folk. But it wasn't. It was actually Raylan Castle, who was the, who's the CEO of the NRL, is it? Rugby Australia, I think it was. Rugby Australia, yeah, Raylan Castle. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of evidence out there in the public about, about the stance that she took, and uh, she did have a lot of correspondence with Qantas, but not directly with, with Alan Joyce. But she made up her mind to sack him, and uh, his captain said that he would never play with him again. And most of these people had never actually seen the tweet, they clearly never actually read the Bible, the Bible verse, but they decided he was homophobic. And that's why he lost his job. The, um, 
Rugby Australia say that he was in breach of his contract, that'll all play out ultimately um, in the courts. But my point is this, this, he's the most prominent at the moment, but there are other Christians who are being shut down or who are being persecuted because they are standing up for the truth of the Word of God. I would have to say I was very disappointed when I read an article in one of the major newspapers which was written by a very prominent Pentecostal preacher here in Australia who criticised Israel Folau saying this is not the way we win people to the Lord. We do it through love and acceptance. Now look, I'm, I'm not actually opposed to that idea because anybody is welcome to come through the doors of this building and into our church. But we want to see lives transformed. We don't want people to stay in the state that they are when they come through these doors. Now what disappointed me wasn't so much a kind of theological perspective that says we're not going to be too hard on sin. We're going to welcome people in. We're going to make them feel comfortable and then we'll let the Holy Spirit work on them because that's the kind of doctrine that is fairly strongly entrenched in Pentecostal circles today. I'm not critical of that doctrine, but the one thing that really surprised me for someone who is such a prominent leader of the Pentecostal movement in Australia didn't even think to say, did God tell him to? Israel believes. He says, I felt compelled. That's why I support him. If, 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 if he'd come to me and asked me before he put that tweet up, I probably would have said to him, I don't think it's wise to do that. But what I would have said as well is, did God say? As best as I can tell, he followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He did what he was asked to by God. And he's lost his job as a result. And even if, even if he wins his case of wrongful dismissal in, the, in Fair Work Australia, they don't want him back. Other players have already said, we will never play with him, he will never play with us. His own captain said, he will never play. But what he did, many of us have done the same. Many of us have put a post up on Facebook or we've, we've tweeted something or even in the public square. We've said something about our faith. He's lost his job because of it. And so too have others. So I think we need to look at these letters. In the case of the letter to Smyrna, it's a church which God is not condemning. He's commending it for standing strong, standing true in the face of persecution. And we can see even in our own country today, there are those who are standing strong, who are standing true in the face of persecution. Some of us might have to do the same. Some of us might have to do the same. I don't think we're going to be executed. 
but we might find that we are shunned. We might even find in some cases that we lose our job. But we need to know this, that even though we might be persecuted, we will not be harmed by the second death. 